Okay, uh, Isaiah time. Turn over to Isaiah. Again, if you're new or you're just joining us or you've been gone for a little bit, uh, we have embarked. Uh, the ship has left the harbor and uh, we are on a cruise navigating through the waters of the book of Isaiah. This is uh, the most impressive of the major prophets uh, in our Old Testament. We distinguish between the major prophets and the minor prophets. That's not saying that some are more important than others, but major and minor distinguish the length of the books. So with major prophets, we're thinking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, maybe Daniel, and then uh, the minor prophets are uh, what we call the Twelve, Hosea and uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah and Nahum and, and those books, and uh, so so we're opening up a, a massive a massive book, and this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me as the t- I know I know I'm supposed to be piloting the ship, but it's overwhelming to me. It's it's a big book to get our arms around, uh, and yet we see again, um, ju- just because of how often this book is quoted in the New Testament, that there are things here that we really need to understand. You know that. Um, have you ever done this? Have you ever, you ever uh, maybe walked into your living room? Maybe you've been, you know, stuck in the garage working on something, or you know, you were out doing errands, and you come home, and uh, a family member has started a Netflix movie, and you're walking in about 45 minutes late on the movie, and um, and you you know what the temptation is? What's going on? Who's that? What are they doing? Right? And, and you have a, a spouse that likes to do that, or kids that like to do that. Okay, so so that that's that's the challenge of of the the new testament sometimes when you when you jump into the new testament and you start reading books it's like coming into a movie halfway through you know who's this what's that what's this? What, what? and that's why you need to know your old testament as well as you know your new testament because the new testament is built on top of the old testament and new testament writers assume that you know your old testament which means if you don't know your old testament you're going to feel lost you're walking in 45 minutes late going who's this who's that and everybody's going shh Watch the movie. So knowing Isaiah helps us to understand uh, the gospel more particularly in the New Testament. Uh, we, we often say that we read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. Just like knowing something of the New Testament helps us with uh, reading the Old Testament. So it goes both ways. But, but more often than not, where, where I think we get stuck is we're reading the New Testament and we don't know our Old Testament well enough to make sense of it. So, so my name is Keith. I'm going to be your tour guide as we jump here in Isaiah today. <clears throat> and uh, we find ourselves today in Isaiah chapter uh, 4. So that's where we're going. And um, I'm going to review a little bit here. Again, if you're new or it's been a little while, um, we'll do a little bit of review today. But um, the title of the message today is Salvation, a Song, and the Sentencing. Salvation, a song, and the sentencing. Part of the diversity in the title is because we're, we're going to look at a bigger chunk today. But it really is interesting to see uh, these themes come together. And, and so let me, let me give you a, a bit of a navigational aid as we start here. You're going to see in the book of Isaiah the same themes come up over and over and over again. And, and here's the frustration. You're going to feel a little bit like you're reading Proverbs. You're, you're reading a couple of verses on this subject, and then two verses later, he's on another subject. And then he's going to jump over here. And, and, he's, and it's going to seem random, and here's a temptation, okay? And, and I'm guilty, and maybe you are too. 
as you're reading Isaiah, you're going to get so frustrated, or at least be tempted to be frustrated. I don't know what he's talking about. He's talking, I don't know what this is. And you're going to be tempted to put the thing down. Okay, Do not put it down. There is design to this book. You just have to know what the design is. Okay, so let me let me help you with one of this. Look look on your notes or up on the screen here. These are four of the main themes that you're going to see cycling through. And it's almost like it's almost like Isaiah doesn't want to let us get too comfortable in any one of these, which is why he jumps around so much. So, so let's just look at these. The first one at the top there, the prosperity and blessing of Israel. We've we've seen that, right? And we'll see it again today in uh, chapter 5 that God has blessed Israel. These are his people. And uh, he has given them land. He has given them blessing. He has allowed them to overcome uh, enemies around them. He has uh, given them the law, his word. He's making them a light to the Gentiles. And so one of the things that Isaiah constantly reminds the people is just how kind God has been to the nation of Israel. And we'll see that. We'll see that this morning and you'll see it again. So one of the themes you want to be looking for when you're reading Isaiah is something of saying, look at what God has done for our people. Look at how kind he's been to our people. The other thing you'll see, and this is the contrast, is this sin, wickedness, rebellion, idolatry. And again, we'll see this in what's called the, the poem or the song of, of the vineyard today in chapter 5. Um, but in light of God's kindness... Israel continues to rebel against God's law. They continue to get, uh, fall into idolatry of the people around them. They continue to practice every kind of, rick, of wickedness. So you've got this blessing that God has shown them, and then you've got the absolute ingratitude and rebellion of the people in light of that. And of course, and then going to the right side there, the issue of judgment, because that's what the book of Isaiah is for. It's saying, in light of the blessing God has shown, and because of your idolatry, this is going to happen. Judgment is going to happen. The threat of judgment, we're going to see a whole description. God's going to say, if you don't repent, here's exactly what I'm going to do. There are no surprises here with God. God says, if, if you continue to walk away from me this is what will happen to you so so turn away now repent now so judgment of course is a big theme there and underneath all of those themes what i'm arguing is really the main theme of the book of isaiah is the character of god and his promise of salvation uh, yes it's true god has been kind and blessing yes it's true that they've been sinful and rebellion yes it's true that judgment is coming but god is a god of holiness and righteousness, of mercy and grace, of kindness. And so we will see the character of God ooze out of this book as Isaiah intervenes in this uh, rebellious people. And, of course, with that, the promise of salvation. And uh, we'll see a, a great example. So we will see all of these today. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to look for all four of those while we go through our section today, okay? But it's there. And you may want to even just... You know, slip that, write that down somewhere. When you're reading through Isaiah, be looking through those four because they're all there. But like I said, Isaiah doesn't always tell you when he's switching themes, and that's what can be frustrating sometimes. Okay, now, why should you care about Isaiah? I'm going to show you why, once again, Isaiah is as relevant today as it was way back in the ancient day when Isaiah was writing this, okay? So, so don't write this off as an old dusty book that uh, we don't need. You, 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 will not, you will not believe how, how specific this book is in describing some of the challenges that we face today. 
Okay? So with that, let's ju- jump in here uh, in chapter 4, verse 2. Okay? Now we've just talked about uh, that section... Um, uh, that, that section where, where God has critiqued the leaders. Remember that? I know this was like two weeks ago. God is critiquing the leaders of Israel, and then he, is, he was critiquing the, the family and specifically the women of Israel. So, so, so no one is without conviction here in the nation of Israel. Everybody has gone astray, and God is calling out everyone. So chapter 4, verse 2, we, we pick it up. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Now, now, now stop right there. That's a problem because he's just been talking about judgment. He's just been saying, you know, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and if things don't change, my judgment is coming. And then he says, in that day, there will be this righteous branch, this branch of the Lord, that will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Now, what did Isaiah just do there? He switched subjects, didn't he? That's absolutely right. One moment he's talking about judgment, and then he says, wait, 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 wait. But there's hope, right? There's a day coming when this desolate land, remember because of the war, because of Assyria, because of the... um, the, the thwarted attempt of Babylon to, to come in and destroy uh, Jerusalem, that was stopped at the last minute. The, the, this, this fertile, wonderful land is largely ransacked with the uh, aftermath of war. And Isaiah says, but you know what? There's coming a day when the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. He's saying there, there's coming a day when Israelites that remain will be the envy of the earth as they look at the beautiful land that they reside in. So there it is, right? There, there's hope coming. There's a remnant coming. Now, do you notice that little term, branch of the Lord? You see that there? You, you need to remember that because Isaiah is going to start building on top of that theme. Right in this context, the branch of the Lord. By, by the way, how many of you have a capital B in your Bible for branch? Okay, anybody have a lowercase b? Anybody have a W? Just kidding. Um, okay, so, so, um, sorry. Yeah, so, so the capital B is the English translate, translator's way of tipping their hand on what they think that this branch happens to be. Um, and with, so I want you to pretend, whatever your Bible says, I want you to pretend it is a lowercase b, because in Hebrew, there's no capitalization. So it is just a normal B. Now, whether it is significant or not, whether it needs to be capitalized because it's representing somebody whose names we usually capitalize, we'll see in a minute. So look here. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. So who or what is the branch? Why do you say that? Because my Bible has a capital B. No, no, no. Remember, we're not, not doing that. Um, why do you say Jesus? Well, he is the main branch that we're grafted in. That's one way, right? So he's actually the root. Okay. That, that is true if we think about like a John 15, or Pastor Terry's going to get to Romans 9, 11, where we talk about some of that imagery. Okay. So other imagery in the Bible relates Jesus to the branch. Okay, that's good. That's a good clue. What has to be the determiner of meaning in our text? 
the context, right? So, so look, look back at your verse and tell me what it means. You didn't know I was going to make you work this morning, did you? What, what does it mean? Let me help you. Isaiah is a poetic book, which means if I were to show you this in original in the original text, and, and if I could somehow explain that, which I don't know, it, 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 it's written poetically. You, you can put it under the microscope and see that very clearly, just like if you pull up you know, a, an English poet, you, you would see that. It's poetry. Now look back at verse 2 and tell me there is a poetic feature in verse 2. And if you slept through English class, sorry, you, you need to know grammar and poetry and literature and that's all good stuff. There's a poetic device here. There, there, there's, a, there's a something that Isaiah does that helps us to understand what he means. Do you give up? Is it too early for poetry? <laughs> yeah, I hated poetry until I realized God inspired a bunch of it. Then I thought I'd start paying attention. So, Okay, so there's some parallelism here. He's going to say the same thing two different ways. Look at this. He says, The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. In a poetic way, that usually means he's saying the same thing two different ways. The branch of the earth that's beautiful and glorious is being equated with what? The fruit of the earth. So even though Jesus is referred to in vineyard, branch, vine terminology in other places, including Isaiah, I'll show you that in a minute, we have to look at here and say that's probably not what he's talking about, at least not yet, okay? Uh, we, we try to shoehorn Jesus in here, we get in all sorts of trouble contextually. Because then it's like, well, how is Jesus like the fruit of the earth? Well, I guess he could be like the fruit of the earth. But that's not the natural reading, isn't it? That, that would not be your natural reading of this text if you didn't have pre-programmed in your mind Jesus as a branch. So, so again, um, I, I want all of you to be growing in your Bible interpretation skills. And one of the ways we have to do that is we have to come to the text and let it speak for itself and not import things that we know that are true in other passages, but not import those into our passage when it may not actually be there. Be okay? Sure. You could read it like that. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying. In fact, some of the some of the earliest, uh, actually, the the um, uh, uh, the, the Talmud, a uh, Jewish commentary in the Old Testament thought that this was a messianic reference. So, so it, it's not that a reference to the Messiah is a bad reference, uh, and there are possibilities like that. It's just it seems that the context pulls those two things together, which would make a messianic reference less likely, perhaps, than others. Okay. The point is there's going to once again be prosperity in the land. Now, hold your place there. Flip over to chapter 11. Because what Isaiah is going to do, and this, this goes back to um, what Nick was saying, okay? What is going to have to happen for the land to be prosperous again? What's going to have to happen? You know, he mentioned, you know, the branch is the one that brings it, okay? That's a good thought. Because 
this remnant that's going to be saved, this future for Israel, the, the, the fruit of the land that will be prosperous and the envy of the ancient day, something's going to have to happen to change that. Because remember, where are we at? We're, we're on the brink of judgment. We're, we're in rebellion. We're not repenting in the nation of Israel. So, so something is going to have to drastically change for the, for the prominence of the land to change. And when we get to chapter 11, here's, here's what Isaiah is going to do. He introduces this idea of the branch in chapter 4 and says, hey, there, there's prosperity coming. So then the natural question is, well, when? How? And then in chapter 11, he's going to build something on top of that using the same image, but this time that branch is going to point to someone else. Look at chapter 11. Verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, here it is, and a branch, is your Bible uppercase or lowercase there, B? Isn't that interesting? A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, 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 listen to this, here's the description of the branch. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, masculine pronoun. So we have clear biblical evidence that this branch is a man is a person, right, who's coming. Uh, and you know these verses, right? The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so what he does is Isaiah builds this idea of the righteous branch coming to bring about the prosperity that the branch in chapter 4 uh, originally envisions. Okay, does that make sense? Now, we can parallel that. I, you don't need to turn, up, turn there now, but Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33, which is another prophet that overlapped with Isaiah's ministry, Jeremiah is going to talk about a branch too. And uh, you'll, you'll see in those verses that this was a common theme of the prophets coming together. One of the things that we forget, um, t- two of our favorite preachers today, John MacArthur, John Piper, they're alive at the same time. They're contemporaries, right? A hundred years from now, people are going to read about those two guys and they're going to go, did they know each other? And we read the Old Testament like that sometimes too. We forget that Isaiah knew some of the other prophets. Um, and they were friends. They, they, they hung out. They, they, they compared notes. They did things together. And so it's not surprising that some of the same imagery is being used amongst different prophets. And of course, they're all pulling from the same source. God's inspired, or God's Holy Spirit working in them to do that. So the branch of the Lord coming prosperity, later on it'll turn into a a metaphor for the Messiah. Number two, God's cleansing salvation. Look at this, back to chapter four. Go back to chapter four if you're not there yet. Look at this. And it will come about uh, that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for the life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has, here it is, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Now stop right there. Why the daughters of Zion? Look back at chapter 3. Remember chapter 3, verses 16 to 26? He was talking about the sin of the girls. And how far the, the, the wives and mothers of Israel had departed from the Lord. And so in chapter 4, now we have hope, right? The, the remnant will be holy. They will be righteous when the Lord comes and He cleanses the daughters of Zion who are in need of that cleansing. Okay, They're purged. Back to verse 4, they purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of the Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. What does that remind you of? 
Exodus, right? And, and what, now, now you gotta think now. Because now Isaiah is assuming you know your Pentateuch now. He, he's assuming you know your Torah, your, your first five books of the Bible. What did the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night for the nation of Israel back during the Exodus times, what did that signify? God's, his protection, his presence, God is with them. So when Isaiah pulls that metaphor and says, hey, someday I'm going to cleanse everyone, I'm going to make them holy, the bloodshed will be gone, and I will once again be like a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. What's he saying? He's saying, I will be with you again. And my glory will be known. In fact, he alludes to that here. He says, the brightness of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory will be a canopy, an obvious display that God is with his people. Because you remember, as God's people are rebelling and they're losing wars and they're losing land, what, what are people saying? What are their neighbors saying? God's not with you. Yeah. And, and, and here's the tragedy. Listen very closely. When God's people live like the world, we lose the credibility and influence that God intends for us to have. You get that? When we, when God's people live like the world, we lose the credibility and influence that God intends for us to have. And that's what's happening here. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations of the true God. And yet their rebellion and their sin and their wickedness was causing people to not, not just take them seriously, but causing the nations around them to say, ha, your God's not real. And I wonder, because that's not a principle for just Israelites, I wonder how often Christians sacrifice their credibility and their influence to a world that we're called to be lights to, right? We're called to, to, to be God's spokesperson. How often do we lose our credibility and our influence because we're living like God's not real? We're living like the world. We're living like everybody else. And people go, eh, well, they're no different, right? Yeah, James. Yeah, 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 let's not, not whip up on our Amish friends because, you know, while isolationism is, is not the answer, I think their, their particularity regarding holiness and avoiding worldly, worldliness is commendable, isn't it? Okay, so here's the thing, guys. Though God's judgment is eminent, there is a promised salvation and restoration of a remnant of Israel in the future. That's what we're seeing, and you're going to see this consistently throughout the prophets. Uh, Pastor Terry is getting ready to launch into Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he will unpack, you know, I'm doing the flyover of, hey, here's, you know, previews of coming attractions. Pastor Terry is going to pull the curtain back and actually get into the mechanics of what this future for Israel looks like and why we know there still is a future for Israel. Not every Christian believes there's a a future for Israel, and that's a great point of of dialogue and discussion. But I just want you to see that according to this verse, like we're going to see all over the rest of the Old Testament, that God is saying there is a future. There is a remnant. There will be a restoration. Uh, taking these verses in their normal plain sense, that's what we see. Okay? Number two. Um, 
I want you to imagine Isaiah walking in to the city of Jerusalem. And again, you know, there's lots of damage, lots of battle damage, war, as as, uh, uh, invasion attempts have been warded off. The people are discouraged. They're just kind of going through their thing. They're they're involved in the sins of all the other people. They're, They're living like the world. And Isaiah walks into the city one day, and I can picture him, you know, he, he maybe brings a little like portable pulpit like George Whitfield used to, and he gets up there, and he stands up, and he gets his little tuning pipe, and he clears his voice, and he starts singing. You know, well, that's what this is. Isaiah walks into the city, and he's going to sing a song. This is a song, and Isaiah is going to play the role of the singer, okay? So let's just, let's look at the song. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved, I'm not going to sing this for you because you'll enjoy it a lot better if I just read it. Uh, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Okay, now I'm sorry, I'm, I'm taking you to poetry class again here. But, okay, who's singing? I told you that already, didn't I? Okay. Who is the well-beloved? That's God, okay? Who is the vineyard? Man, you guys are slaying this. Good job, good job. Okay? Now, so so what is the the sort of premise of the song? What's the theme of the song so far? Okay. Okay, God's been good to Israel and they're ignoring it. Dave? God's provision, God creates this nation, this tiny little nation that becomes prosperous, that, that is entrusted with the things of God. And, and what does God say? I expected you to do what? To produce good fruit. Okay. And what did they do? They went wild. <laughs> they went wild. Yeah. So again, thinking back to those four themes, right? God's blessing. God's grace to his people. And then rebellion, disobedience. And uh, now watch this. Okay, so that, that's where Isaiah's song ends. What happens in verse 3? Who's speaking in verse 3? <laughs> so we find out Isaiah was just a supporting vocalist. Uh, here, God grabs the microphone and he takes over. Okay, God takes over. So this is God speaking in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah. Okay, now the, the metaphor is gone. We're not talking about a garden and vineyard and that was all nice. Now God gets direct to the point. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Okay, so now it's, now we clearly see it's not Isaiah singing about his beloved in the vineyard. It's God, the beloved, singing about his vineyard now. Okay? Um, Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? What's God saying? Yeah, what else do you want? Look at what I've done for you. Why? 
when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Verse 5. So now, let me tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. He's going to take a John Deere bulldozer to his vineyard. So now let me tell you, I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed, right? Hedge of protection, right? You get it? I'm going to remove the hedge of protection and I'm going to let you be assaulted by your enemies. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled on the ground. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible about the wall of Jerusalem being destroyed and ultimately being rebuilt. It's the book of what? Nehemiah. In direct fulfillment of this uh, prophecy or this song. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Why? Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, now you should have thought something there. Lord of hosts. Where have we seen that before? I know. It's been a long time. Back in chapter 1. That's right. And the Lord of hosts is God coming in, in what, in what regalia? He's, it's his military title, right? He's saying, I, the Lord of hosts, the commander in chief of the armies of heaven, planted my vineyard, and now I'm coming to destroy it. Notice, my beloved, my vineyard, it's, it's, it's endearing terminology, right? It, it's, it's close proximity. This is the sort of language you use in your family. And God's saying, this is what I think about you. This is how much I care about you. And now I'm coming to destroy you. And we go, why? Why would God take His beloved, His, his very family as it were, and say, I'm removing my protection. I'm letting you be utterly... In fact, I want you to be destroyed. That's why I'm doing this. We go. Why would he do that? Okay? It was part of his covenant as a means of demonstrating what? What's that? Yeah. That's that bottom piece, right? The character of God. I've said this before. I will say it probably dozens of more times. Part of what we are supposed to see in the book of Isaiah is that our God is more holy and righteous than we can possibly understand. I don't think we have a clue of what happens in the heart of God when we engage in what we think of as a little departure from His law, even in our minds. I don't think we have an ability to fully assess how offensive any departure from His holy nature is in His creatures that are supposed to image Him in all things. Let's not think, and and this is a good illustration, let's not think 
that because there's some sort of you know family proximity and closeness that God will overlook sin. That it is not as horribly wicked and unspeakably evil as what we're learning here. And, and, and Pastor Terry will get to this in, in Romans in a, in a few chapters. If God doesn't spare his own people who depart from him, why do we think he's going to spare us? Who have the full counsel of God. So, you know, I, I know we're coming off of Resurrection Sunday and all that, but, but part of this, guys, is to realize how deeply we truly need a Savior. And how significant our sin really is in the eyes of a holy God. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, look at this, his delightful plant, okay? They're my delight. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress. So woe to those who add house to house. And woe, verse 11, to those who rise early. And woe, verse 18, to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood. Verse 19, or verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, so on and so forth. So you see where this goes. God says, you're my delight, but you violated my covenant. You violated my law. I am no respecter of persons. And um, I had to look up the word woe. What does woe mean? Um, We'll see here in a minute. Woe is a cry of grief from the prophets of God over sin. That's what it is. Okay, so what's going on? What what does the song mean? What does the song mean? It means that as much as God has entrusted himself to his people, calling them well-beloved, his vineyard, his delight, that because of their rebellion, God puts on his military attire and he goes to destroy it's interesting, we won't do this right now, but you know this, John fifteen six, a metaphor where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, right? What does Jesus say will happen to those branches that don't produce good fruit? They're cut off and they're thrown into the fire and burned. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7, a more direct text, when he says, um, you will know them by, your, uh, by their fruits, right? Um... When he says, uh, you know, good fruit is coming from a good tree, a good tree, bad fruit is coming from a bad tree. And then he says, what happens to the bad trees that produce a bad fruit? They're cut down and thrown into the fire and burned. So it's the same imagery. It's the same message. We, we should not think because we live on this side of the cross and Jesus is all about grace now that that means that significant sin and evil is not thought of in the same ways as the prophets. It's the same message. So now we get into these woes of coming judgment. It's a hard word to translate. Uh, In Hebrew, it means something like alas or look or ah. It's it's an emotional expression of of grief. And and, uh, one of my dictionaries uh, uh, said it like this. It's a grievous, threatening cry of the prophets. 
So when you see that, particularly in the prophets, that's what we're talking about here. Now, now notice, what are the specifics of what these folks have been doing? Look at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. He's there. Um, he's talking about their prosperity. They are putting economic achievements, houses, gardens, farms. It's, it's worldly pursuits. This is, this is the American dream of the ancient day. I'm making my life about the pursuit of happiness, whatever that means. Look at verse 9. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate. He says, you see your mansion over there? See that? You're living alone because you own so much land. Your neighbors are far, far away because you own it all. I'll destroy your little mansion, God says, if that's what you've made your life about. Even great and fine ones without occupants. Verse 10, for 10 acres of a vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah uh, ephah of grain. What's he saying? He's saying you got all these gardens, all these farms. I am going to make it so that none of those crops produce what they normally would. Correct. Right. Yeah. This is Deuteronomy 13 or something like that. There's an allusion back to a command like that. Yeah, where they were they were they're explicitly violating the command there. That's that's absolutely right. Notice this too. So so and it's interesting. He tips off of that. There, there's an allusion here that they've got all these vineyards and yet they're only going to get one bath of wine. Why is God shutting that down? Well, look at this. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and by wine, yet they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. What are they doing? They're putting the pleasure of alcohol over obedience to God. They are abusing alcohol. They're just, you know, staying up late. They're getting up early. But, but notice this. Why is alcohol such a danger? Well, he says here, because they do not pay attention to the Lord. How much alcohol do you have to put in your body for you to start changing how you normally would think about things? Not a whole lot. I talked to my, uh, my brother-in-law who's... Uh, Corporal Austin Police Department, and he essentially is over their DWI department. We, we talk about this. Uh, when, you guys, some of you are here for Proverbs. We talked about alcohol, the, the verses in alcohol in Proverbs 23, and then we talked about the Christian alcohol. You remember that? Um, and I talked to him about this. Uh, and you know, there's there's legal, you know, legal limits, blood alcohol ratings, and, and then there's what the law says and all this. But but the reality is, here's what the Bible says: If you put anything in your body that alters how you normally would do things in a way that you're not paying attention like you should pay attention. That's a violation of the law of God. And that's what's going on here, is they're thinking, hey, this is what everybody does, right? It's party time. Grab some buds. They didn't say that, but um, but we do, right? And, and, and no, notice this. Notice how relevant this is. The association of having a good time with an association of alcohol. 
and, and uh, for, our, for our young theologians in the room, you guys get this, right? That, that the, the message you hear is you can't have a good time without some alcohol participation. You see it on commercials. You see it on college campuses everywhere. You see it in advertisements. That's the whole thing, right? You, you're not, a, you can't have fun unless you have alcohol. That's the message. And is that any different than what's going on here? I'm thinking, yeah, that's what everybody does. It's party time, right? We do that. And it's saying that's, de- that's, that's pushing you away from the Lord because you don't care as much about the Lord as you should because you're impaired by alcohol. Look down verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. I won't ask for frat stories here. Uh, frat party stories. Um, valiant men in, in mixing strong drink, you know, there, there's a popular cultural notion, man, look, look at how much he can take, right? Look at how much he can handle. God says that's utter foolishness. So alcohol is a problem. Notice this, viol- the violation of morals and using religion. Watch how he develops this. Look back at verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. And sin as if with cart ropes. What's he saying? He's saying, look at how dismissively people are engaged in all sorts of sin. They're they're engaged in, in it like they get up in the morning and grab the ropes on their cart and take their ox into town or whatever. It's just commonplace is what he's saying. It Iniquity falsehood they, they sin easily regularly normally now now listen to some of the he's going to quote them here god's going to quote some of the things that they say verse 19 who say let him make speed let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the holy one of israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it okay now that's a little bit hard to understand but but work with me here What are the people saying about God in regard to their sin? Right. Right. And and, and specifically, you know, uh, they're alluding here to God's promises, uh, God's purpose there in verse 19. And, and, and here's, it, it is, that's exactly what it is. They're going, how long has this been going on? And God hasn't acted, right? So what do they do? Well, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And God, if you want us to do something different, you know, let us know. Yeah, yeah, they are challenging God. And, and you think about this. We, we talked in our psalm about living by feeling versus living by faith. Living by faith says, God says it in his word I believe it, and then I live in light of it. Okay, God says it in his word. I believe it. I live in light of it. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter if it's popular. That is a walk of faith. That, that, that is the, the, the Hebrews 11 walk of faith, right? But what they're actually saying is, well, God says it, but look at what everybody else is doing. God says it, and God doesn't appear to care Either way. So why not go have a good time? 
Why not make life about all the fun things that life has? Why not get involved in all the things our neighbors are involved in? Why not take advantage of things so I can move up the corporate ladder? Why not? Because it doesn't seem like God cares. Is that ever a temptation for you? You know, um, remember remember what Peter says uh, in his letter? He says... um, what does he say? He says, you know, God is not slow as some count slowness, right? You know, for, for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and years like... And what, what, remember the context of that? The context is believers are going, why isn't God coming back? Why isn't he acting? This persecution is happening and what's going on? And, and that's where he says, you know, when God isn't acting, listen very closely, when it seems like God is not acting, that doesn't mean he doesn't care. What Peter says is God not acting is because he's patient and he's giving people time to repent. That's why God's not acting right away. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So they're violating morals. They're, they're, they're using God here, right? They're using religion saying, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And, and when God, if you want us to really change, then you act. And oh my, is he going to act? There is irony in these words, guys, because they're going to wake up one morning to the most powerful nation in the world, uh, tearing down their walls, setting fire to their city, taking their wives and their children off to Babylon, slaying others in their presence. See, God's being paid. That, that's such the irony. We take the patience of God as license to sin. And God's saying, no, I'm giving you time to repent. That's why I'm not acting. How about this? Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There was a tragic murder this last week of a pregnant woman. And because of the abortion laws of the state in which it happened, there will only be one count of murder to that situation. Because of abortion, there are no abortion laws that equate to criminality in that particular state. Did you hear about it this week? Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Think about the last Netflix you watched, the last show. How much of what we entertain ourselves with is good, being presented as good when it's really evil? Or it's really evil being presented as good? Did I say that right? Um, yeah, you know what I mean, right? And that's that's enterta- Entertainment is messing with your thinking and emotions so that you are rooting... For the immoral person in the film. Because the gal that he's involved with is married to an idiot husband. Because it's true love. Because we want justice at any way possible. Even if it's an illegitimate pursuit of justice. Or even if it's not your role. Think about that. Think of, think of what we put in front of our eyes. Think of what we listen to. 
I mean, I don't, I don't hate country music. I really don't. But how much of that message, I'm picking on country music, all music does this. How much of that message is messing with your heart to get excited about something that put Jesus on the cross? And you know what? I struggle with that too, just like you do. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light. And light. This could be written about 2019 American culture, couldn't it? How old is this book? Like 2,800 years old? And here it is, guys. Nothing, nothing has changed, is it? The temptation to depart from God, to entertain ourselves with things that are really wickedness masqueraded as something beautiful. You guys, you guys have seen the, the entertainment uh, box before, right? I totally did not intend to do this, but I'm going to do it. Um. Okay. This is this is how you need to evaluate entertainment. There's good, moral good, and moral evil. It's presented either either in a beautiful way or an ugly way. Okay. So, as a Christian, we're thinking about entertainment in saying we want morally good things being presented in a beautiful way, right? And we want morally evil things being presented in an ugly way. And that, that's the Bible, right? The Bible presents morality. Good morality is beautiful. Now, does the Bible just talk about everybody doing the right thing all the time? No, no, no. There's lots of sin, lots of evil, lots of wickedness, but it's always presented in an ugly way, isn't it? So it, it's not it's not that you know we go in a monastery somewhere and just think about this. No, no, no the, the world is full of evil and all that, but what, but what we think about in entertainment and in life is evil being presented in a way that's ugly. The problem is, the problem is, what does Hollywood and a fallen culture do? We major on presenting evil in a beautiful way and presenting moral good in an ugly way. You see the difference? Um, I'll be Vanna White here for a minute. Kids, ask your parents who that is. You see that? Make sense? Okay. That is not original. I can't remember the book that it came from, but um, so, so helpful. So when you think about, hey, we're going to Netflix this tonight. We're going to watch this on YouTube. We're going to listen to this. We're going to download this song. Ask yourself the question. What's the message about moral good and evil? Okay, because it's there. Everything has moral morality to it. Is good being presented in a beautiful way or an ugly way? Is evil being presented in a beautiful way or an ugly way? We want to major in these categories. We want to try to stay away from those categories. Uh, David said in Psalm... It's like doing poetry first thing in the morning. I can't remember the reference. Um, David said this, and I'll find the reference. I put no worthless thing in front of my eyes. He wasn't talking about Netflix, but that sure applies to Netflix, doesn't it? Okay. So they're violating morals. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those 
who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. What's that referring to? Yeah, they're prideful. They're arrogant. They're saying we know what's best against the word of God. We see our reference to alcohol again. 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. So here's God's conclusion. Okay, we we skipped over it, but here's God's conclusion. Look back at 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. How many have heard that point, that, that, that verse quoted before? It has a context. My people means Israel. Lack of knowledge means not they're ignorant, but they're not living in light of what they know. Their honorable men are famished. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, this is graphic. Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth. This is like the Sarlacc in Return of the Jedi, isn't it? It's like the grave is opening up to, it is. Yeah, he didn't talk about that, did he? Um, it's opening up to, to, to judge you, to, to digest you in, in, in your own destruction. Jerusalem's splendor. Listen to this. Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance at base. Again, God's no respecter of persons, right? Whether you're a prominent person or a nobody, you're coming under judgment. Here's the key phrase here. The eyes of the proud also will be abased and the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Because our God is an awesome God. He's a righteous and holy God who comes in judgment. Notice the description. Go back to 24 now. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flames, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. For on account of this, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the street. This is a graphic chapter, isn't it? For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. So what's God going to do? Verse 26. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. So you picture that, like, like you know, when, when Fido's in the yard and you want him to come in and you whistle and your dog comes running into the house, God says, I'm going to whistle to a foreign nation and they're going to come to destroy you. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. Verse 27, no one in it is weary or stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and it carries it off with no one to deliver it. 
and it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. God goes graphic and says, if you don't repent, this is what is coming. Judgment is coming. The most powerful nation on the earth is coming against you and will utterly destroy you. Deep breath. That's it's sad, isn't it? It's really tragic. And yet, here's what I want you to see, but, but before you put your notes away, here's what I want you to see. The same issues that are the content of God's indictment are the same things you and I are tempted to do. Whether it's entertainment, whether it's using religion, where it's saying, well, God hasn't stopped me yet, so I guess it's okay for me to keep doing this. All those same things. And it makes you wonder, you know, we're not, America is not the second nation of Israel. But it makes you wonder, I mean, what's, what's coming for our country? As we continue to call evil good and good evil. Um, so what do we need to do? We need to repent, right? I mean, if something has come to mind today as we think about this, if there's things that we need to tighten up, repent of, rethink, if there's worldliness that needs to be eradicated, if there are sins that we've gotten comfortable with, whatever it is, we need to heed the counsel of this book that God is kind, He is gracious, He is willing to forgive, but we have to come to Him in repentant faith to demonstrate that. And we need to be aware of, of walking in faith and being being so careful at what's going on both in our hearts and around us that we would not be ultimately the object of God's judgment in all this. Okay? Put a comment in your notes. Next week's going to be really good because it's chapter 6, so you do not want to miss that. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders. We, we grieve and we mourn as this text has given us ample reason to do. Uh, these are your people, and yet we see such graphic depictions of judgment that we know are not, are not turned away from. These things actually happened as your people continued to rebel. Lord, we, say that we see the same sins in our hearts to, to go with the crowd, to be involved in the pleasures of men, to be caught up in worldliness, to be entertained by sin, to become comfortable calling things that you call evil, calling them good. So, Lord, convict us, remind us of our need for a Savior, convict us that you are a holy God, and cause us to embrace the gospel and cling to it all the more. And, and even as, as we walk in sanctification, that we would not entertain ourselves with something that put Jesus on the cross. Um, but we would walk in holiness and purity and righteousness um, because you call us to be a light of influence to a broken world around us that needs the gospel. Lord, will you help us to think carefully that we would not live in any way that might compromise our message or our integrity or our influence? because you've called us to be your ambassadors. Make us faithful. Help us to cling to the Lord. Help us to repent quickly and trust that you'll complete the work you started. In Jesus' name, amen.